and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, December 7th through Saturday the 9th feature guest conductor Miko Frank and violinist Hilary Hahn. The program includes Brahms Violin Concerto, the prelude to Tristan und Isolde by Wagner and Sibelius's Symphony No. 7. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the Brahms Violin Concerto, a work lasting about 40 minutes. Josef Joachim and Johannes Brahms became instant friends when they met in May 1853. Both men were in their early 20s, and although Brahms was an unknown, with all his greatest music still to come, Joachim was already a celebrity, the most brilliant and promising violinist around. Joachim described Brahms as pure as a diamond, soft as snow, reminding us that the composer's familiar portly figure and bushy beard were later acquisitions. With music as their bond, they became close, confiding secrets, enjoying each other's company, and sharing the things they loved. It was Joachim who insisted that Brahms meet the Schumanns, a visit that changed the young composer's life. Robert wrote his last critic's column to introduce Brahms to the public, and Clara became a confidant and a valued colleague, if not more. It was simply a matter of time before Brahms would offer to write a concerto for his best friend. Brahms had overcome his fear of tackling the forms in which Beethoven triumphed and had completed two symphonies and a piano concerto. The Violin Concerto was sketched during a summer holiday at Perchach in 1878, just across the lake from the country house where Alban Berg would write his Violin Concerto nearly 60 years later. Brahms picked the key of D major, the tonality of the second symphony he had recently finished, and planned the concerto in four movements, an unprecedented scheme. While composing, Brahms often turned to Joachim for technical advice about the solo part. Joachim not only knew the instrument's capabilities better than anyone, but also was a gifted composer himself. When they met in 1853, Joachim was the more accomplished composer. Brahms used to let him see everything he wrote, seeking both criticism and encouragement. It was Brahms' own decision to abandon the four-movement design and to replace the two inner movements with a single adagio. The leftover scherzo may have been salvaged for the four-movement B-flat piano concerto Brahms put aside in order to work on this concerto. He was still making further adjustments after the first performance in Leipzig on New Year's Day 1879. The work was not a success. At the premiere, the applause was lukewarm, though many in the audience were distracted by Brahms' failure to hook up his suspenders properly. When Clara Schumann heard it earlier in a private performance, she commented that the orchestra and soloist were thoroughly blended, but others saw that distinction differently. Hans von Bülow, a man seldom without opinions, said that Brahms had written a concerto against the violin. The violinist Bronislav Hubermann elaborated, It is a concerto for violin against the orchestra, and the violin wins. Eventually, Brahms' work was widely performed and greatly admired. It was even deemed worthy of standing beside Beethoven's single violin concerto. Brahms had invited the comparison himself by picking the same key and by writing for the violinist who had recently put Beethoven's concerto back in circulation. 
Brahms honors the classical model. In the first movement, he writes a double exposition, one for the orchestra alone, the second led by the violin. This would be unremarkable, except that most concertos written in the 70-odd years since Beethoven's had struggled to find novel ways to proceed. Brahms has new things to say, but he says them in a form that Beethoven would have recognized immediately. The first movement is on a grand scale, with a wealth of melodic material. Brahms once said that melodies were so abundant in Perchach that one had to be careful not to step on them. Brahms presents a full harmonic itinerary that allows a side trip to the distant reaches of C major at the beginning of the development section. Beethoven went there too, and Brahms includes in the recapitulation further adventures in F-sharp and B-flat, each a major third in either direction from D. As a final bow to tradition, Brahms reigns in the orchestra near the end of the movement and gives the soloist the opportunity to improvise a cadenza. This is the last major concerto to grant that license. Even Beethoven had started writing his cadenzas down, although with a musician of Joachim's taste and talent, Brahms had nothing to fear. He would surely be relieved to know that the cadenza Joachim eventually committed to paper quickly caught on and is sometimes performed today. At these concerts, Christian Tetzloff plays the cadenza by Josef Joachim. Brahms opens the slow movement with one of his finest melodies given to the oboe against a woodwind accompaniment. The Spanish virtuoso Pablo de Sarasate allegedly refused to play this concerto because he didn't care, quote, to stand on the platform, violin in hand, to listen to the oboe playing the only real tune in the whole work. Sarasate would more easily earn our sympathy if Brahms didn't quickly turn from the oboe to the violin, having saved for it an unbroken outpouring of song that carries us through to the end of the movement. We don't immediately associate Brahms with merriment, but the finale of the concerto is unmistakably jolly, filled with good-natured themes and flashes of outright wit. The spirit is that of the gypsy violinist, an intentional allusion to Joachim's Hungarian heritage. The final march, with trumpets and drums, rises to a climax and then abruptly unwinds like a mechanical toy before it ends with a bang. A footnote about friendship. Only two years after the premiere of the violin concerto, the fellowship between Brahms and Joachim began to falter. Brahms couldn't stand to watch Joachim become increasingly jealous of his wife, and by the time the couple divorced in 1884, the composer and the violinist were no longer speaking. Joachim continued to play Brahms' music everywhere, but refused to answer his letters. Finally, Brahms wrote the double concerto as a peace offering, and Joachim, like so many others since, could not resist this warm and heartfelt music. The friendship was restored but the old spark was missing. Program notes by Philip Huscher on the Brahms Violin Concerto. And now on to Sibelius's Symphony No. 7, a work lasting about 22 minutes. In the early 1920s, Sibelius's career suddenly came to a close. Even though he would live another 30-some years, he withdrew from the music scene where he once played a major role, preferring the seclusion of his villa in Yerevanpah.
His decision wasn't inexplicable. It was, in fact, even predictable, as he ventured further and further from the cutting-edge territory of Schoenberg and Stravinsky into his own dark and deeply personal world of sound. His final orchestral works, this Seventh Symphony, and the single tone poem, Tapiola, that followed it, carried Sibelius to the end of the line. We can scarcely imagine what music would logically have followed scores of such finality and stubborn originality. Let no one imagine that composing is easier for an old composer if he takes his art seriously, Sibelius once said. Greater sureness makes one scorn solutions that come too easily. The Seventh Symphony is an astonishing testament to his impatience with convention and his sheer determination to find new ways of saying things that mattered. By 1914, when Sibelius began to sketch this symphony along with the Fifth and Sixth, his standards were already exceptionally high. And so all three of those symphonies are unlike any others ever written, and the seventh and last of them to be finished is so unclassifiable by the traditional names and forms that at the premiere, Sibelius called it a symphonic fantasy only later admitting that it really belonged with the numbered symphonies. Actually, it's the logical culmination of the series, the pure distillation of everything Sibelius knew about symphonic form and thought. For all its individuality, the Seventh Symphony owes its conception to the traditional centuries-old search for symphonic unity. Like earlier influential works by Schubert, Liszt, Strauss, and Schoenberg, it is a multi-movement form cast in one continuous movement. Sibelius makes passing reference to the familiar contents of the standard symphony. We hear sketches of a slow movement, part of a scherzo. It's as if the conventional symphony has been taken apart and cannot be reassembled. In its place, Sibelius writes music that continually renews itself as it moves with great subtlety through various tempos. There are four big tempo changes and a number of lesser ones, and switches imperceptibly from each idea to the next, from one key to another. The Seventh Symphony is a work of epic majesty, stripped of all dross. The material is stern and concentrated. We sense just how desperate Sibelius was to write not a single note too many. The opening, for example, is built of the simplest of materials, the notes of the C major scale. By the way, it begins on A, following a quiet tap on the timpani, and leads to an ominous A-flat minor chord, is full of mystery and rich in implications. As the music unfolds, it's always unpredictable and at the same time, utterly logical. Yet nothing about this symphony is haphazard. It's governed by the certainty that each move is the right one, even though at every turn Sibelius shows little concern for the conventional ideas of keys and subjects. A solo trombone melody, rising majestically from a great polyphonic web of sound near the beginning, carries great weight. It returns twice in the symphony, each time more insistent, and the last time leading to a massive, wrenching climax, like an ache 
in the very heart of the symphony. From there, the music slowly unravels, although the final gesture, a long, seemingly endless crescendo reaching urgently up to C major, is like the last life-affirming words of a dying man. It brings an extraordinary sense of closure to this restless, ever-questing music. This would seem to be the climax of his life's work, yet Sibelius apparently began an eighth symphony sometime late in 1926 and worked on it at least until 1933 or 34. Portions of the score were delivered to a copyist in 1933, but subsequently retrieved. The composer apparently destroyed the symphony in the 1940s. All that remains are three measures of sketches labeled Sinfonia 8 Comincio that provide little sense of the symphony's beginning, let alone its destination. And even though Sibelius had no new works to offer the public, his popularity continued to grow. In a 1935 poll, he was the favorite composer of the New York Philharmonic Society's broadcast audience. He remained a beloved, even revered figure, and on his 90th birthday in 1955, he received 1,200 telegrams, tapes from Toscanini, and cigars from Churchill. He died in 1957, nearly 30 years after the publication of his last completed work. Program notes by Philip Husher on Sibelius's Seventh Symphony. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.